text for this afternoon is from John 20, the verses 24 through 29. We'll also read the verses 30 and 31. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 47, the stanzas 3 and 4. Love congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. This afternoon we deal with the appearance of the Lord Jesus to Thomas after Christ's resurrection. It is a story which is quite familiar to most of us. Indeed, Thomas's reputation reaches beyond the realm of the Christian church. For everyone knows whom we refer to when we speak about a doubting. Thomas. The word, the phrase, has become part of our language. This is so not only in the English-speaking world, but also the case elsewhere. In some languages, he is even referred to as the unbelieving Thomas. In this way, Thomas's legacy to mankind is to view him in a derogatory way. Although he is one of the apostles, Thomas' reputation leaves a lot to be desired. He is viewed as a Johnny-come-lately who jumps on the bandwagon only after all the facts stare him in the face. Many commentators do somewhat of a psychological profile of the man and picture Thomas as a rationalist, as a critical observer who does not let his emotions get the better of him, but who first examines all the facts before he makes up his mind. Others see him as a melancholy warrior who has difficulty coming to faith. But is that how we ought to see him? Are we doing justice to Thomas, or what is even more important, are we doing justice to the scriptures if we dismiss Thomas in such a negative way? Are we really right in referring to others as doubting Thomases when they do not want to see the truth of a matter? 
Well, brothers and sisters, as Reformed believers, we examine all things in the light of Scripture. That means that we examine all things in the immediate context of the passage and in the context of all of God's Word. We do not just take a text in isolation from the rest of the Scriptures and from there draw our conclusions. No, we want to do justice to all of God's Word and let the Scriptures teach us how we are to interpret a particular passage. And so let us listen to God's word as I've summarized it under the following theme. The risen Lord Jesus reveals himself to Thomas as God. And we will see that he does so in the first place for the benefit of the, the apostles and the second place for the benefit of the church. Christ had first come to the disciples on that very day of his resurrection, on the first day of the week, on a Sunday. All the apostles were there, except, of course, Judas, who had killed himself after his betrayal of the Lord Jesus, and Thomas. The scriptures do not give us a direct answer as to why Thomas was not there. One thing is sure, however, the report of Christ's reappearance in the flesh had made the rounds. Prior to them getting together, Christ had already appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other women and to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Christ had told the women that they should go and tell the disciples about this. He also told the women to tell the disciples to go ahead to Galilee and to see him there. No doubt Thomas will have been told the same thing. Thomas, however, does not show up. He is not there on that first Easter Sunday when all the other apostles gather together. Why not? Well, because he has some real difficulties with the reports he has heard. That is clear from the answer he gave to the other apostles after Christ appeared to them. He told them that he first had to see the nail marks in his hands and to put his hand in his side before he would believe. Just like the other disciples, Thomas had always been a devoted follower of Christ. Throughout Christ's public ministry, he had faithfully followed and served the Lord Jesus. But also, like the rest of them, he had not fully understood exactly what he wanted to accomplish and exactly what his purpose on earth was. That is clear from the first time that we meet Thomas, which is in John 11. Up until that point, all we know from the Gospels about Thomas is that he had been chosen as one of Christ's disciples. Nothing else up to this point has said about him. We do not find out anything about Thomas until John 11, which describes the events towards the end of Christ's ministry on earth. In that passage, we read that the Lord Jesus tells his disciples that he wants to return to Judea because of the death of Lazarus. But the disciples are afraid for the safety of the Lord Jesus they are afraid that the Jews will stone him to death. 
for they have become aware how the Pharisees and the scribes have turned against him and that they were plotting his death. For that reason, they caution him against going there. But when Thomas knows that the Lord Jesus cannot be persuaded to alter his plans, then he is the one who speaks up for the rest of them. He says in verse 16 of chapter 11, Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas takes here a defeatist attitude. He thinks that this may be the end. He is prepared to die along with this righteous man. Now you might say that Thomas is a courageous man. He is not afraid to lay his life on the line for the just cause of the Lord. And that's certainly true. But that does not mean that Thomas and the rest of the disciples knew what was going on exactly. For little did they understand what was about to take place and why. It is exactly for that reason that the Lord Jesus wants to go to Bethany. He wants to go there so that they, as he says in verse 15 of John 11, may believe. Christ wants to go to Judea so that he may raise Lazarus from the dead and in this way to strengthen the disciples in their faith, to show them that he is not just a man, but that he is God incarnate who has power over life and death. It is to prepare them for his own resurrection. However, even after the resurrection of Lazarus, they still do not quite understand. That comes later, especially on the day of Pentecost. We see the same lack of understanding when we meet Thomas a little later in the Gospel of John. Just before the Passover, in John 14, verse 3 and 4, Christ tells the disciples that he must go to his father's house to prepare a place for them. Christ says then to them, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And then again, Thomas is the one who speaks up. And he says what everyone else is thinking, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? It's a riddle to Thomas, it's a riddle to all of them. For none of the disciples rebuke Thomas as he speaks these words on their behalf. For note well that Thomas says, we do not know where you are going. And so they, all of the disciples, do not yet understand. It is a riddle to all of them. Thomas is their spokesman. That brings us to our text and to why Thomas is not there with the rest of the apostles the first time after the resurrection, on that day of the resurrection. On the earlier occasion, Thomas spoke what the others were thinking. But this time, through his absence, he lets his actions do the speaking. On that first Easter Sunday, he is not there. He does not want to get together with them unless he first sees physical proof of the Lord Jesus' resurrection. And with his absence, he brings a loud and clear message. It is a message of rebuke. He finds the other apostles too weak. For also this time, in his way of thinking, they 
do not dare speak up. They do not dare to question the report of the women. For Thomas knew that all the other disciples are still skeptics at this point. And so he blames them for not speaking up. And if you think that I'm reading too much into the text here, then I ask you to consider what it says in John 2, verse 18 and following. There the Lord tells the Jews, after his cleansing of the temple, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews, and also the disciples, did not realize, of course, that he was speaking of the resurrection of his body. For it says in verse 22 of chapter 2, that only after Christ was raised from the dead, that they understood the meaning of these words. And we read further in Mark 16, verse 14, that he rebuked them for their lack of faith and for their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And so they didn't believe. And so, therefore, the Lord Jesus rebukes his disciples. And he does not exclude any of them. He does not just single out Thomas. No, Christ rebukes each and every one of them for their unbelief. For they're all equally guilty. Therefore, it is understandable that Thomas, when he hears the report about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that then he questions the sincerity of his fellow disciples. No doubt for that reason he does not show up when the women tell him that the Lord Jesus is going to appear to them in the flesh. At least, so he thinks, he is being true to his convictions. Now, the question is, what is it that the disciples have such a hard time understanding? Well, the difficulty is that they do not understand yet at this point the divinity of Christ. At that time, they were like the modern-day Jehovah Witnesses in that in the final analysis, they saw Christ as nothing more than a man, as Lord, but not as Lord and God. True, they did not honor him as just an ordinary man. They did not think that he was like other men. No, they could see the power that was working through him. They saw the miracles that he worked and the sinless life that he led. But they were perplexed by the two natures of Christ, namely his human and his divine nature. They did not know yet how to reconcile those two. And that is why it is so important that the Lord Jesus reveals himself in the flesh to the apostles. The apostles had to believe that he was not only a great man, but also that he is God. Several times during his ministry, he had told them that if they had seen him, they had also seen the Father. He and the Father are the same, and therefore only he can reveal him. It is after the resurrection that he can finally bring that message home to them. Now is the time. They had to believe that he is not only a man, but that he is at the same time true God. For a man cannot save anyone from their sins. Only God can do so. The deity of Christ, brothers and sisters, is indeed the watershed of Christian theology. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely worthless without a confession of Christ as both man and God. If you do not believe that Christ is both man and God, you cannot be saved. It's that serious. Christ's church cannot exist, cannot exist except she believed that Christ is both man and God. And therefore it is very important that the disciples, that the apostles, understand the divinity of Christ. For the Lord builds his church on the foundation of the twelve apostles. The New Testament church is a continuation of the Old Testament churches, of the Old Testament church, which was built on the twelve sons of Israel, on the twelve tribes. And that is why in the New Testament we call the Christian church the apostolic church. All the apostles had to believe that Christ is not only a man, but also God. On that witness, on the witness of the apostles, Christ will build his church. That brings us to the second point. When the disciples are together on that first day, on that day of the resurrection, Christ reveals himself in the flesh. It is at this time that they finally begin to understand. When the disciples see his hands and his side, they knew that he is indeed the risen Lord. He lives. But Thomas is not there on that first Sunday. And that was something that had to be remedied. It could not be so that one of the apostles would not make the same confession as the rest. For it is very important for the future of the church. It could not be so that one of the twelve would contradict the witness of the others. Christ could not build his church on disunity. It was all or nothing. And so a week later the apostles are together again. This time Thomas is also among them. No doubt this will have been a very difficult week for Thomas. During that week, he will have pondered the words that the other apostles had spoken to him. They had told him that they had seen the Lord Jesus, that they had seen him in the flesh, and that they believed. What is he to make of that? Thomas also wants to believe, but he can't. He wants to see it for himself. And the Lord Jesus allows him to think it all over for a whole week. He needs time to digest it all. So much has happened. When Jesus died on the cross, his whole world fell apart. Did it all have to end like this? What is the use of it all? Now our leader is gone. His mission has ended in failure. He was hung on a cross like a common criminal. His body is now in the grave. Nothing really has changed. And the Lord Jesus knows the state of Thomas's mind. He knows that Thomas is confused. And that is why Thomas needs to be convinced of the truth. Thomas must be made ready for his confession. He must think it all over and he must put it all into perspective. And in so doing, he must ponder the possibility of the two natures of Christ. But we see that Thomas is not unwilling to believe. He gathers together with the apostles, and then Christ appears before his very eyes. But this time, Thomas does not take the initiative. 
he does not speak up for the rest of the apostles. For at this time, Thomas stands alone in his unbelief. Although he wants to, he cannot speak for the rest of them. For at this point, he is outside of the circle of the apostles. Therefore, the Lord Jesus takes the initiative himself. He knows exactly the difficulty of Thomas. And then gently he leads him to the truth. He first says to all of them gathered there, just like he did the week earlier, Peace be with you. He says this also to Thomas. God's peace rests on his church. As we saw last week, this is a word of great content. This is the greeting of blessing of the Lord, of the risen Lord himself, who is the head of the church. Through him, God's church is now restored to a relationship of peace. God's anger because of the sin of man has been appeased. The apostles can come with that message of peace to all of mankind. They can proclaim the peace of God. But why can he do so? Because he is the risen Lord. Because he is God who has defeated Satan, who has triumphed over sin and death. And in order to convince Thomas of the beautiful content of that message, he guides Thomas's finger into his hand and Thomas's hand into his side. Thomas feels the marks of the nails and the mark of the spear in his side. Thomas can now no longer be in denial. And now Thomas no longer hesitates. He also believes. It is noteworthy that Christ still bears the scars of his crucifixion. Maybe you have never thought about this, but this is not to be expected. For the renewal of the body after the resurrection refers to the renewal of the total body. All the signs of man's former sinful existence are to be removed. Not a trace of it is to remain. For that reason, we would not expect that Christ would bear in his body the effects of sin. Indeed, when we meet Christ again in the flesh in his appearance to John, the apostle on the island of Patmos after his ascension, we see him in his totally glorified body. And then he no longer bears the scars of his crucifixion. However, in our text, we see him before his ascension into heaven. He still has to go to his father, and he still has a task to perform. He must make ready his disciples for the task that lay ahead for them. They have to believe and proclaim that he has risen from the dead, and he retains his scars in order to convince his disciples. And so the disciples do believe, and finally, so does Thomas. And then, brothers and sisters, we hear one of the most beautiful beautiful confessions recorded anywhere. When Thomas sees and feels the nail marks in his hands and the puncture wound in his side, he cries out, My Lord and my God! Finally it becomes clear to him, Christ is not just a great man, no, he is much more than that. He is at the same time true God. Now it begins to dawn on Thomas the importance of Christ's mission on earth. He came in order to reconcile men to God and in so doing to conquer death. Christ lives. He will live forever. 
And now those who believe in him will also have eternal life. And now also the circle of the apostles is complete. Now Christ can do what he set out to do, namely to build his church on the foundation of the apostles. Now they can trumpet that message abroad without hesitation and with great hope and conviction. What a relief that must have been for Thomas. The great scales that covered his eyes and the plugs that filled his ears so that he could not see or hear have been removed. Now it is all finally clear to him. And now he too can open his eyes and his ears and his hearts and his heart to others. Christ reveals himself to Thomas. Thomas finally believes. He is not a doubting Thomas. He is not an unbelieving Thomas. No, he is a believing Thomas. Christ came to many others while he was on earth. Yet the majority of them did not believe. They rejected him outright. Thomas never truly rejected the Lord Jesus. It is true, Thomas had his difficulties. No doubt about that. But so did the other apostles. And when Christ reveals himself in his total victory over death, they rejoice together and together confess their Lord and Savior. And that is why we should not view Thomas as an unbeliever or even as a doubter. To be sure, Thomas was a sinful human being, and he should have believed right away when Christ first announced his impending victory over death. But in the final analysis, Thomas was not any different from the rest of the apostles. And in the end, he did believe. He was not like the millions of others who rejected Christ as Lord and God. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you also believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is your God? Or do you, too, think that he is nothing more than a great man who lived 2,000 years ago? You may think that that is a strange question. However, think about it. For if you believe, then that also has consequences. Most people today reject the resurrection of Christ. They do not believe it because that would mean too great a change in their life. For to believe in Christ as your God means to be totally committed to him. You cannot be indifferent to him. You cannot be lukewarm and be a skeptic. No, the Lord God wants your confession. He wants your confession from the heart. And he wants you to live out of that confession. He wants you to live your confession of faith. Let me warn you, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, if you do not believe that Christ is God, then you will not share in his resurrection. Then you will not share in his victory. Christ went to great lengths in order to bring the apostles to faith. He wanted to build his church on them. But he also went to great lengths in order to bring each and every one of you, each and every one of us, the gift of faith. And then you may say, well, at least the apostles saw the Lord Jesus himself in the flesh. We don't have that privilege. Then let me remind you of the last verse of our text. The Lord Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Brothers and sisters, also on this Sunday, Christ as God has been preached to you. 
But now we live after Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Christ has built his church on the foundation of the apostles. He, have, he has given his Holy Spirit so that we too may believe without having seen. In that sense, he has appeared to you in a much richer way. For that reason, you must believe. What then shall we say? Can we deny that witness? Can we deny the witness of the faithful preaching of the Lord Jesus as God? No, brothers and sisters, we cannot. For if we do, we reject the witness of the Holy Spirit. He comes to us in the preaching and he says to us, Here I am. See, I live. And now you too may live. You may have eternal life. And so believe. Do not resist his spirit and bow down before him. Let your Easter confession be spoken without any doubt. And submit yourselves to Christ. And believe that he died for you. Be a believer like Thomas was. For the Son of Man lives. He is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. Believe in him and be granted eternal life. Amen.